You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Bracken, I've always wanted to uh, to wake up and have my morning cup of coffee with you. And today that dream has finally come true. Here we are. Audience can't see it, but I'm holding up my my beverage. What is your beverage? It looks like an, a clear orange liquid. This is water plus meal plus emergency. Okay, okay. Is that your typical? I have an emergency packet every single morning of my entire adult life for probably the last nine years. That really paid off for you this last two weeks, huh? (laughs) (sighs) Well, I got the good stuff here. This black, you know, gold, could they call it? Folks, this is the earliest Bracken and I have ever recorded a podcast in our history. Bracken, such a diva, he had a busy schedule today and had to get up at basically 3 in the morning so we could do this. What I've gotten really bad at scheduling my week, and I consistently forget that Tuesday is the day we have to drive an hour to get the kids to school. Oh, why do you drive an hour on Tuesdays? I don't talk about my kids on social media a lot, and I only mention them a little bit on the podcast. Because I still feel like they have the right to choose how much they want to be known by people outside of our family. Mm -hmm. When COVID hit, obviously everyone had to do homeschooling, that Zoom schooling, which Lisa and I are fine with. We were both teachers. And then the next year, the protocols were so strange in our district and up in the air. They were talking possibly the kids were going to have to be isolated at desks for like eight hours a day and no contact with others, no specials, no recess, like all the things that... We have a four-year-old daughter, <laughs> things like that, that mm. they have to be doing. You can't expect a four-year-old to sit for eight hours. So we just homeschooled. It was easier. And then this year, it was we were still a little bit unsure about the, the direction our district was going. So we actually open enrolled into the district Lisa used to teach in and that Braden used to go to school in because they have an online charter school. Oh. So they give us all the curriculum we do all that at home, but you still get to come in once a week for all the specials. So they come in and do art, um, world culture, gym, music. They yep. get lunch, recess. They get socialization and all that stuff. They cram it all into one day? Yeah. Plus, it's Lisa's hometown, and her parents live there, and they're retired. So we get to kind of make mm-hmm. a day of it. So I make my Tuesdays my Sundays, where I don't really do much work on Tuesday. But I've gotten away from that. I keep scheduling things for Tuesdays now and then I forget about like oh shoot that's we have to drive in an hour that day so Mm -hmm. we're leaving in an hour here to drive in so I got to be done recording by then and we rarely record our episodes on the morning of their release but special exception again I think you so this will bring us into it but I my assumption is that you were away this weekend at High Rocks Mm -hmm. and you got busy and so you're playing a little catch-up this week which I feel like I'm usually the one doing that so it's nice to see the tables turning and cramming into your schedule so let's just talk about it man how did it go I I was impressed with how like well organized I would say you and Callie looked by the video I had seen 
it was very systematic from my from the appearance. It looked like you guys were a well-oiled machine as far as like the fundamentals of what you were doing, mm-hmm. the transitions, the switching back and forth. It was actually really nice to watch, but I don't know things through your eyes. We haven't talked about it. Um, we haven't talked about it since the race. We both could not be happier with the result and the execution. Well, what happened? Tell them. Where'd you finish all that stuff? We won, which was goal one. That's right, baby. Goal 1A was try to set the world best time, and that was out the window almost immediately. That time is really stout. And uh, I don't want to get right into excuses, but it was the longest transition zone, I think, in the history of High Rocks. We had five minutes and 41 seconds of just transition time. Oh, my goodness. Which was time not spent out on the track running and not at the station. And I've never seen a transition time longer than like four and a half. Where where, where, where exactly was this transition time happening? Like from the videos, it was hard to tell. A lot of them seemed like you were right in, right out. Yeah, the, the picture the, the running track as a large rectangle. And so if I'm holding my hands up making a like a air quotations almost like that, at the top of each finger was on the top of my left finger was the transition out and right finger was the transition in. So it was on far corners. So every time you came in, you had to run the entire length to get out. Where if Got they're it. closer together, you might have some longer transitions, but you have somewhere you're right at the station and right back out. And we didn't see any of that really on the video is what I'm understanding. It probably looked like we were just running another lap coming all the way down. But So you had, I mean, think of a track. This was two and a half laps for 1,000 meters. So that's that's kind of like a, a running track, right? Yep. So picture how big corner of one track to corner of the other side of the track is. That's over 100 meters. A lot of space to waste in there if you have to. We had a full 110 meters of transition time each time just to get from the in to the out without counting in going in and then find the station back to the the transition part and then run back out so got it if you look at it that way times eight you have almost an extra thousand meters of running just sitting right in there Mm. so that that changed the dynamic so the the time was out the window almost immediately and that was okay because we were in a battle for the first 20 minutes of of the race but it was great we we executed Almost perfectly. I think we only made two mistakes, as far as I can recall, in terms of our what our plan was coming in to what we actually executed. I think we only broke form twice. No. I can't say that either one was truly costly. They were just, we broke from the script a little bit. Okay. So from that front, we were we were really happy with how we executed. Now, you, you won... Um... Mm-hmm. I was a little, I just waited to have this conversation with you because, well, one, Bracken and I, we seem to save these conversations for here now, so it's organic, but. Yeah. So th- I was a little confused, though, because Lisa was doing the videoing, and she showed this other team that I, d- I didn't know who either people were, and I wasn't sure if she inferred they were in first, or they were, so I was confused about that. Who is this other this other team I wasn't aware of? Yeah, so the way Hyrox worked for this one and for a lot of them is that there are two waves per section. Got so it. the pro men and women have the top 10 or 12 ranked or 15 go in the first wave and then neck. It's like an A heat and a B heat. Hmm. And with ours, they somehow were in the first heat and we were all in the next heat. So they were the only team in the first heat that was really going after it. And we had talked prior trying to get them 
into our heat, but we just, we couldn't make it happen. Got it. So that would be where the confusion was with this other team who is in first, but I thought you were in first. Um, and then it said they had a lap lead, and I was like, a station lead. And I was like, no, Bracken and Cali are in the lead, Lisa. And so I got confused. And I don't know if it's it, Howie or, or Ho, but Mark Van Howie and Lauren Rentala. Okay. They're a couple out of Texas, and they're animals. <laughs> Absolute animals. They looked like animals. Yeah, they were working hard. Yeah, and they had just won the Dallas High Rocks in 60 flat, I believe, a couple, several weeks earlier. So we were all kind of doing the same thing, trying to run sub-60, scare the world time, and win. And they didn't get to go on our heat, which was really a disservice to them. So it was certainly a time trial where they just had to run against the clock, and then we had to win our heat, but then also beat the time ahead of you. It was kind of like a, a college track race if you had a two-part final. Okay. Yeah, I get it. Okay. And so then I guess the question is, COVID, post-COVID, uh, how did you feel? Did your body show up for you? All that stuff. Warming up felt like every other race. And the moment we exited the first station, I knew I was in trouble, <laughs> like significant trouble, Kirk. I, uh, again, I don't want to overplay COVID's effect, but this was so significantly difficult, so much more difficult than the sim Callie and I did. It hurt, I would say, as bad or worse than when I have done open races by myself. But I got to rest, like, <laughs> like maybe 30% of the time. I felt like I was racing with a mask on. Mm. My cardiovascular system was certainly not recovered, and I paid for it pretty much. I told Callie, I started cracking on station two. Oof. It was really bad, Kirk. Like, really, Callie carried me. What do you? So do you feel that affected your performance heavily as far as overall time? Like, you lost, yeah. like, minutes? It, it's hard to quantify because it really just feels like you're having a, a really bad race. So, yeah. like, where does the – it's not like COVID just, like, announcing itself. Like, oh, you're 25% slower. I, I couldn't – I'm trying to mm – -hmm. I've tried to break it down, and I really can't. But anything that required my cardiovascular system was significantly impaired. And then anything that required my quads, like, betrayed me. Man. It's very strange. I left here with no upper body soreness, and my lower body is as sore as after any mountain race ever. I was walking the exact same the next two days as after the Tennessee Mile. <laughs> this morning, I had to hold on to rails to walk downstairs for a 60-minute flat ground race with no terrain well the messed up thing is that you've been pretty specific you did the exact same thing in a simulation or near the exact same thing within weeks and you weren't this sore only four weeks prior yeah four weeks and that's that's the thing i'm trying to separate is how much fitness can you lose in four weeks if you don't stop training was i a little less specific at times yeah did i miss specificity for covid for a week yeah but i ran every day so I don't, it's really hard to, to separate. All I know is that Kelly pulled me. The first two runs, I paced us like I did every run of the sim. And the mm -hmm. last six, I got behind her or on her shoulder and just held on for dear life at 630, 635 pace. Yeah. Held on, like not being exaggerating here. This isn't me being a drama queen. I was in race mode telling myself, just no matter what you do, 
don't disengage yet. <laughs> Every lap. Mm. It was really bad. Yeah, well, that makes it even more impressive. All I know is that like when I, I am known to get sick or have bad luck with races, and once I start to feel back to normal... I can go out and recovery run. I can go out and like, I feel better in life. Like my life energy returns. And then as soon as I go do something that matters, it's like I've had the worst session or race I've had in months or years. Like once you push the body, sure you're back in life and easy stuff feels good. But once you breach a certain exertion level, it's like the piano's on your back immediately and you're worthless. And I've had that happen to me countless times over my career and it's tough because you feel better in general and you think, okay, I'm back. And then you cellularly and physiologically down in there, what really moves those muscles and makes you work hard, not ready yet. Sounds like you experienced that a bit. Yeah, but it was weird. It like picked at spots. So sled pull felt great. Hmm. Sled push felt terrible because it was quad based and maybe – Maybe more breathing on that one. I don't know. The the walking lunges felt great. Hmm. Burpee broad jumps, like a little bit more cardiovascular, felt so terrible. I was 30 seconds slower than normally, oh, wow. and it cost me way more energy. The The rowing felt like death. I, I rowed probably 10 seconds per 500 slower, and I've improved my rowing. That's a ton. It was a weird day, Kirk. And so, one, I'm grateful to Callie. She pulled me through. I still did good work at some stations, but I was I was worse at almost everything than in our sim. And she was better. So it was, she had a big day. But that it makes me excited because we obviously qualified for Worlds, and it's in Vegas this year rather than Berlin. So uh-huh. we have some room for aggressive growth. You have till May. Um, well, that, congratulations, Bracken, on the victory. And Callie. Thank you. Congratulations on pulling that dead weight around for 60 minutes. Man, her back's got to hurt. I'm carrying the team. Oh, well, that's even more impressive, man, to uh, to pull off the win not feeling great. Every every athlete that I've worked with who got COVID, when they have their first intense effort back, they get obnoxiously sore. Hmm. And I got that. Yep. So, so, so sore, but only in strange places. So... Very weird, Kirk. Well, now, that's your excuse to take it easy breezy the next few days. But it was a great weekend. Every one of our friends, it seemed like, was there. Yeah, I saw it. It was, a, little, it was like the good old days. A little FOMO there. Um, should we jump into our question of the week, Bracken? Yeah, let's jump on in. Do you want me to randomly close my eyes and pick one? Sure. We have seven questions of the week that we think would all be good, so we're going to space them out over the next few episodes. Let's start with a little sex. <laughs> a little scandal. How's that? I like it. All right. Spice it up this morning. Um, let's get spicy. PG-13 question for your next Q&A or this situation. Growing up playing soccer in the clubs, the coaches always told us to not have sex the day before the match as it could affect our game performance negatively. Is there any truth to that? Does it apply to endurance races? Uh, curious ahead of the next races. How much have you looked into this? Uh, I've looked into it enough, uh, but not my guess, knowing you better than the audience knows you, you've looked into this in great detail because of the topic, not because of the nature <laughs> of your personality. Any, uh, it makes me sound like a pervert, but yeah, I've researched this a lot. Well, I wish everybody knew. Yeah, we've had some good conversations about this in the past. That's how I know. 
it's something that in has intrigued me from a performance nature. So yeah, I've 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 researched this a fair amount. I try to stay on top of current research in a broad variety of areas, and this is just one of the tabs I keep open. In incognito, <laughs> you don't need incognito. <laughs> that's a fair, clean search there. No. Um, so, well, this has been pervasive in boxing and in track and field, and then some ball sports for decades. And the science seems to show that in terms of recovery, 24 hours, 12 hours in advance has zero impact on you Mm -hmm. in terms of your actual biological status. There have been studies that have shown that if you engage in sexual activity the day before a race, (laughs) some people just perform better because they're happier, but no one performs worse. Day of and right before, you, you've you seen day of, you've seen 50-50 results. Some people get worse, some get better. Again, some people have such positive endorphins after that they improve. And some people actually have, like there is there is an actual testosterone drop afterwards. But uh, the process of regenerating is, I think it's somewhere between 8 and 12 hours. Mm-hmm. But right before is bad. Yeah, I don't know this from the female standpoint, I guess. We're looking at this through the male lens. So for that, I, I wish I knew a little better. For, from what I've read is, yeah, there's a significant testosterone drop after you finished up there. And uh, that window can last a good a good bit. Typically, sleep is restorative. So that even would mean like you could get away with a little morning and then take a nap and then maybe be back to homeostasis as far as levels go. But it sounds like the day before and sleep is super regenerative. You wake up and it mostly comes down unless you worked real hard, I guess, which there could be some nuances there physiologically. You get a good night's sleep. Uh, all is back to where it should be the next the next day as far as bar- biological markers from what I've read. You've read the same, it sounds like, right? Yeah, it, it shows that you really just like anything else, you don't want to try anything new on game day. Yeah. Where if that is something you're used to, your body's going to be totally fine, especially the next day. If you're not compromising your sleep, then you're fine. Mm-hmm. Now, there's there's further levels to this. From the female side, you're less affected. There still is post, <laughs> post-coital. There's still a drop on both sides, much more significant on men. Mm-hmm. But for both sides, there's this ramp up in production of important hormones and then the drop afterwards the drop Mm -hmm. is less significant for female but there have been eastern european black countries have actually tried using this the same way that they used uh late term abortions to try to maximize the red blood cell increase in females they've had basically edging for their athletes where they engage in sexual activities not to completion so you get the big buildup of testosterone for the men, and to some extent that side works for the women too. Mm-hmm. And then no completion, and then you go compete with your hormones raging. If that's not dedication, I don't know what is. And I'm fairly certain the U.S. cheerleading, collegiate cheerleaders, were notorious for doing that for a while. I think they called it juicing up, Kirk. <laughs> God. And half of that is probably just the guys being like, yeah, this is such a total performance enhancer. Your girl should <laughs> definitely try this. But th- like, that is an actual attempted performance enhancing technique that's been used. I'm not interested. But what it comes down to is that day before is basically a myth. Day of, you're, you're kind of playing with fire. 
Yeah. I had a, a roommate in college, um, and so I went to UW Oshkosh, and his girlfriend went to UW Lacrosse. They were both distance runners. And there was twice when they came into Oshkosh for a track meet. Our dorm was right across the street from the Colf Center, which is our indoor track. I mean, 100 yards. So she would sneak over after the bus arrived or in the morning, sometime, and they, they would do it in the morning. And then they'd go to the track meet. They did this. First time he did this, and my, my, buddy, my roommate was an All-American uh, as a freshman in cross country, and he's a multi-All-American in track. Anyways, shit the bed in his race in late morning in the 3K or 5K. Like, he was like 30 seconds or 20 seconds off his time, and him and his girlfriend had, had sex that morning. Uh, and then it was the later that year they were back again, and they decided to, to replay the exact same situation. Because basically what happens is, you know, track meets start like mid-morning and they go through like mid-afternoon and there's this like downtime. If you have one of a, an event that's later in the day and you happen to have a dorm room right across from the facility, you're, you don't see your girlfriend but once every month and a half because she goes to another school across the state, you sneak her over to your dorm and, and whatever. Anyways, same thing happened again. And then we had a long discussion about, he had his, ter- his two worst races by far. He's like, it was just empty. I had nothing. Um guy turned out all right he's so qualified went to nationals did great but he experienced that twice in a row and it had to be a you know a two to five hour window there and i witnessed it firsthand to what extent (laughs) as in like he told me the story i wasn't like in the corner in the room um dorm rooms bunk beds it's a tricky situation yeah i was on the upper bunk always screw that but anyways so i experienced that secondhand in a sense and it seemed very real for him so yeah yeah point being been there Second hand. Safest way, ensure that there is a sleep in between. That's what I was saying. Yeah. Not where I saw my morning starting off, Kirk. It's not even yeah, 7 a.m. No. here and we're talking birds and bees and the performance of both. Happy Tuesday. Happy Okay, Tuesday. should we talk about something at greater length? Yeah. Yeah, I think we should. Something we're always learning, Kirk. Yep. And there is no greater teacher, I don't think, than competition and competition taught me something although covid certainly impacted me this weekend in a very painful painful way i couldn't help but notice that without covid some things still were going to affect me more Mm -hmm. and it kind of highlighted not kind of it blatantly highlighted to me the the perishable nature of some of your skills. Now we did a perishable skills episode in the past, um, but this is going to be a companion piece to that where there are some things in, in athletic life that are use it or lose it. Mm -hmm. And I experienced some lose it this past weekend. All right. Well, you can begin this conversation because it's so fresh in your mind. And I would say, by the way, I guess before, I guess I'll set you up a little bit. Like, the the use it or lose it should be on a lot of people's minds right now because we're all, not we're all, most of us are in this base phase. We haven't raced in a while. We know they're on the horizon. We're doing what we think we should do, which is, you know, build appropriately. But we haven't really used it in a long time, some of us. And so, mm-hmm. so I think this is more relatable to some people than maybe they think because... Um, Races are coming up, and you haven't raced recently. True. 
So the first thing that I didn't have was just resistance to impact. Going into our first sim, I was only two weeks removed from the Tennessee Mile. So I hadn't been doing much specific, if any specific, high rocks movements other than a lot of lunging and sled work to help prepare my durability for the descents and the climbs in Tennessee for six hours. Mm -hmm. And that six-hour preparation work played over into our high rock sim. Pounding my quads in that sim didn't bother me. The sleds felt great, and the runs on pavement felt fine. My quads were pretty bulletproof. But in my continuing recovery from Tennessee, because it still took several weeks to get my body really back to good, I didn't run any real pavement runs, and I didn't run any downhills. Our hills around here were now closed for ski season, and we got this weird, it snowed only one time, and all the rest was freezing rain, so everything was icy. So running pavement downhills wasn't really an option. And I did almost 100% of my running on my Nordic track. Mm -hmm. Most of it at an incline to help recover and not take impact, but by the time we got to race day, now I was eight weeks removed from eccentric loading and from impact and from downhills and my quads were kind of babies out there yeah i've been thinking about that same scenario for myself lately so i put in 11 weeks of downhill work and it carried me for a full two weeks after my race and probably a few weeks more than that but there is a there's a time i don't know like a a time elapsed at some point you just don't have all of that anymore Mm -hmm. And I, I've clearly found out that eight weeks is too long to keep that durability factor of my quads after stopping and working on it. It's a, it's kind of a, a tricky thing. And this is just, and some of you will be able to relate to this and some of you won't, but like living in the upper Midwest, flat Midwest, the only real access we have is ski hills uh, for any sort of real um, terrain. And they get all shut down right now. And so you can run uphill to your heart's desire on your Nordic track, but getting that eccentric like pounding from descending is almost, I would say, impossible to find. And if you do find it here, it may be a snow-covered trail, which softens your, your impact. I can't think of any roads around here, Bracken, with any sort of incline, like I, within like an hour any direction. I'm sure there is one. I just don't know about it. But point being is... That sure as hell is one way to lose durability when you have races coming up that require nothing but durability. So it's been top of mind for me, and I think a lot of athletes who are... This is just one example of what we're talking about today, but point being is there's ways to lose things that you once had, as yeah. we will say. And you're right, you're facing that. You're facing, if you're going to follow the North American Elite Series, you kick off with big hills followed shortly after by steep, massive mountains. Yep. Like, let's put the altitude aside. You can't run a mountain unless you travel for the next, what, three months? Two. Minimum two months, and then you're going to have to be able to race them. So you are going to have to find a way to get some eccentric loading and impact and some sort of downhill skill work without having downhills. Yep, exactly. And, and so it just reinforces that we have to be, at the very least, every other week, refreshing our eccentric durability in our quads and mm -hmm. you're going to have to do that so i mean there are there ways to do that without doing hills yes but you have to be intentional about it and i was not 
I kind of overlooked it, it's especially since it felt a little bit more like Callie's race than mine, mm-hmm. which was a mindset error I made. I didn't focus on my supplemental work the way I would have and the way I will moving forward with we're going to focus on May High Rocks World Championships and these pieces will be points of emphasis. Okay. So let's talk about it then. Like, let's talk about where you lost like durability. Like let's talk about timeline now that you're looking back so people can understand and we can relate this to a number of situations, but I think we should use yours as, as the example right now. Well, we've talked before that eccentric loading on your legs, that there have been, a, there, there's been at least one study, if not more, that have shown roughly 20 days you reap the, the benefit for after doing a big session. Mm-hmm. So even a moderate session, you have 20 day window where you're still reaping the rewards of that. So at minimum, after you've done a block of this work at minimum, every third week, you've got to go back to the well again. refresh your your stores and when i say when you go back when you say go back to the well i feel like and knowing like let's just say a 20-day cycle of this that means like go hit it hit it not like i'm gonna just hit a couple of the down like for example the downhill example like oh i'll just make sure to run a couple of the downhills in my neighborhood and i'll be good no like the focus is on this skill and you are smashing your body with intention big time is what you're inferring correct i am because I think the longer you go in between these bouts, the bigger the bout needs to be. If you're doing it every other week, you could probably get away with every other session. So every two weeks you do a moderate session, and then alternating the two weeks after that, you do a big session. If you're doing it every week, you can probably do downhill strides one week, moderate session one week, bigger session one week, and then maybe every six do a massive session. But if you're really just plugging and playing every three weeks – you got to swing it pretty good each time. Yeah, yeah. That's so I want to make sure you're inferring. And I think you were going somewhere with continuing on from that. But Well, I think you get to now. Oh, it's my turn? You're the one who gets to, to try to bulletproof yourself for West Coast and Mexican mountains in your basement. So what are you, you going to do? I don't have a basement. No, you don't. No, I don't. Which is rare for, for the Midwest. Basically, only life, lake life gets you no basement up here. Yeah, everybody's got basements. Yeah, it's kind of weird, actually, not having one. It's like, where do you put all your shit? Um, yes, so it, this became top of mind for me with with the fact, like, w- Bracken and I kind of debated as to how we wanted to title this episode, right? You were talking durability. Yes. And I am I was like, this is basically like fitness versus race fitness, like race ready. Mm-hmm. Like you're fit, but are you really race ready? And we kind of, maybe we'll land in the middle. I guess it's a mashup. Yeah. A little bit of a mashup. They're both top of mind for us right now. Yeah. I was feeling lack of durability. You're worried about lack of race readiness. But that would mean durability to the, you know, the nuances of the races that I'm I have coming up. So they they stem from the same place. Yeah. Um so yes, yeah, so this has been this is top of mind for me now starting to formulate a race schedule saying okay, like what skills? Sure, I'm fit. I am fit. But Fitness only gets you so far. You see some of the most fit people on Hold on paper. one second, please. What are you doing? Kids getting wild down there. I got to tell right. them to shut the door. I'll hang tight. All right, continue. You got to tell those kids, you know, keep them in line. Listen, I don't care what's going on in your life, kids. We're recording a training Tuesday today. No. So, anyways, formulating the race schedule for the year for me and thinking, 
crap. A lot of these things I'm working towards or potentially working towards this season, I don't necessarily know how I'm going to approach this perfectly, like immediately. And again, my fitness is good. Engine is good. And I was saying, how many like times do we see somebody on paper with a, with a 1435k or a somebody who runs a, a monster race or can crush the roads and you say all right they got the best engine here and they got the quickest feet like this person's going to be a problem and they get spit out the back as soon as you can think as soon as the race gets real and you see that happen all the time and then I put that on myself a little projecting and say okay I've been running roads and treadmill and shoot like I'm not running technical trails intermixed with eight foot walls and crawling on my hands and knees and running down hills hard and then attempting to work hard afterwards. And so the durability piece is like, okay, well, okay, we, we both have the foundation and you listening, if you're following any of the things we talk about, you're starting to build your foundation, right? So we have like, we've layered the first layer in there, but then it's like, all right, now let's get down to brass tacks here. We aren't ready to race we haven't checked the boxes, the durability boxes, which the race is going to require. And now it's like, all right, what do we, what do we kind of do here? Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a very, unless like, for example, in the snowy Midwest flat, da da da. Like I got to imagine, um, if you follow even any sort of like OCR circuit or trail running circuit, heck, even some of the trail races in the Midwest, we get to go to these great parks, run up and downhill. Um, most everybody out there that doesn't have access to this stuff has to feel a little unready, right? This entire time you're talking, I'm just flashing back to an episode we did with Mick, Mikhail Drill. Yeah. And he is an example of, of how you can think outside the box. I feel like this is when coaches earn their money. Mm -hmm. Anyone can write a generic program. It's when you say, hey, prepare me for the mountains with no mountains. And then you think, then you realize who can think outside the box. And Mick can. He's a master of being a, what do you call him, the Manitoba mountain goat? I think he calls himself that maybe, but yes. The flat ground living mountain running man. And and finding ways. I mean, how, what would Fred Clary say? How does the body work? Is that how it works? If you can eccentrically load in other ways, will it play over to some extent? Yeah, it will. You have to pair it with skill at some point. You have to pair it with actual work. But if you can get that done, the actual work, once a month, and you're doing the skill work in the gym or somewhere else every week, you can cobble together a pretty good race. And we've seen Mick do it. And maybe we need to have Mick on again at some point just to talk mm -hmm. about this one singular piece, preparing for mountains without mountains. Yeah, But that's where my mind goes right away that now you have to be super intentional about get all the skill pieces in place so that when you do get that, whether you decide to travel or you decide to break into a ski slope at night or whether you decide to you find one really good pavement hill and you're just going to beat your legs up once a month, whatever it is, those other pieces, the supporting systems are already in play. So now you're just translating it to race-specific skill rather than having to build up the durability and the skill all at once in a last-minute cram session. Yeah. Well, let's, let's like, sort of maybe, if people are starting to, like, think about themselves in relation to this, we use, like, downhill running or mountains as an example mm -hmm. if you don't have them. Like, what are some of the other things that we could be talking about here? Like, if you're anybody listening to this podcast, what are some things that you could let go of without really knowing it and still having good fitness but being like, 
oh, these are the things that could slip on me. Do you have any that pop into your head right away? Off the cuff, the things that athletes come to you and say after races were, I wasn't prepared for the either uphill or downhill. Yep. I wasn't prepared for the terrain. Whether that is I do all my running on the roads and this was a trail race and I just I couldn't find any rhythm on the broken ground or the opposite. I do all trail running and when I had to keep one straight stride on the road mm-hmm. for for 10k, I just broke down. I didn't have the staying power. So it's generally terrain based. And then the next kind of layer to that, you hear about weather a lot. Yeah. I was way too hot. I wasn't ready or I my my body couldn't perform in the cold, but it starts with uphill or downhill. And then it moves to smooth versus very broken. What else do you got? No, that's that's actually one of the directions I was going to go. I think the first and foremost thing when it comes to like durability or race ready fitness is like it, the terrain is always the the topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually have a few in that second boat you mentioned about they love the trails and they have access to them, but they want to run a fast half marathon in May. And we yeah. preach like, you know, they love getting out there and they're rarely on the roads because that's their preference. And unfortunately, it'll be a, a rude awakening if they stuck to the trails and then raced on the road. So, yeah. So um, so that I think it just all comes. I mean, you can talk about race specific fitness. You can talk about um, durability, but I think it still comes down to like the appropriate resistance to like impact or work, like whatever, whatever that means to you. Like I'd like you to outline what I'm, what I'd like you to do is specifically kind of talk about ex- the the yeah the exact way that High Rocks went wrong in a sense like okay. if you had to go back and break it down very simply for us like how would that look like what could you have done differently so to speak like how would this play out in your certain situation well what I was doing prior to High Rocks was all of my quality work my intensity, which was lacking intentionally, and my long work was done eccentrically. It was all up and downhill. And the mm-hmm. downhill is eccentric, and the uphill is power driving. And then the rest of it was done on a sled, pushing or pulling, or lunging, body weight or underweight. So, uh, uh, meaning underweight, meaning under a load with a, mm-hmm. a sandbag or something, or a, a weight vest on. And that all does carry over to high rocks. Outside of the lunging and the sleds, it's not event-specific, but it still worked the skills I was going to need. And I got rid of all of those except for sleds. I did a bit of lunging as well, but I wasn't doing any impact. I took no impact. Even when I was doing my sled work, I was then hopping back onto the Nordic track and running uphill at least 6% on my work. Right. So I lost all impacting the ground. That was the first thing I did. And then the second is part of the reason I had decent foot speed going leading into Tennessee is because I was running a lot. I was ripping a lot of downhills. You do a lot of work at 200, 220 cadence running down yeah. ski slopes. And I lost all fast feet work. And so I basically did eight weeks of no fast feet. And that's long enough to go where you start to drop your cadence a little bit. And I certainly felt that on the run as well. I just felt a little slower in my feet. So those mm-hmm. two specific areas, impacting the ground and running fast. Because, again, running fast up a treadmill at 6%, you're not going to see 200 cadence. No. You're not going to see 220. That's just not happening while I'm also not impacting the ground. So those would be the two places I'd point to right away to say, 
Come on, low-hanging fruit here. That should have been easy to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so we were talking like a little bit, you are talking a little bit of a timeline then sort of, sort of there. And then it gets my mind turning like, all right, how, uh, for no matter your circumstance, no matter what your races are coming up, like how far out is far enough out to either one, get back what you lost or two, develop like the race ready fitness or like the durability that that race is going to require. Like how far out do you need to, do you need to start implementing these things if for some reason you have been slacking? What do you, what do you think there? I think that there's a sliding scale for this and it slides based on how long you spent building that skill in the first place and how long it has been since you've worked on it. If you're doing the every other week approach, you can sharpen up for a race in three weeks. A responder can probably do it in less. A non-responder has to do it a little, a little bit earlier. But if you're doing the every three weeks, every four weeks, you might want to start four or five weeks out. And if you just if you did what I just did, where you went eight weeks without, you might want to do a five week build, mm-hmm. a six week build to get it back. I don't think you have to work on any specific skill. Now, I'm not talking engine. I'm talking skill. Right. I don't think you have to work on a skill longer than five or six weeks. Well, right. And your engine, other than COVID, let's just put COVID aside, your engine was good and remained good going yes. into this this race. So engine is off the table here. We're taking that out of the conversation. Right. So. I think three to four weeks is enough for most athletes to sharpen up any skill. Two to three weeks you can get away with, especially if you stayed on top of it. So Hobie Call is notorious for this. Maybe he's not notorious, but in my mind, he's notorious for this because I, mm-hmm. so many times I'd be at a race and something might go a little wrong for him. And he'd be like, oh, this next one, I'm going to be untouchable. I'm like, Hobie, that's three weeks away. You can't do much. He's like, oh, I just, three weeks is a ton of time. You know how much work I can get done in three weeks? Mm-hmm. And that's because he was always working on things. It was never really gone. So three weeks of specificity would just prime that man and have him all, all ready to go. So the less you let things go, the less you need. In his mind, three weeks in between races was like an entire off season to prepare for what was coming next. If it were like, if I were thinking about this, you know, you also, for your example, like you did two very different things in a short amount of time meaning you did a six-hour endurance race and then six weeks later did a high-intensity aerobic combined with like anaerobic power output event. Mm -hmm. So you are a unique situation here, but that is also the nature of like our sport. People will race a road 5K and then go run an ultra beast in the mountains that takes 10 hours, right? Right. So what I'm sort of getting at here is you know, I believe like, let's say you didn't have such a disparity in your, in your races. When it comes to this, you talked about like, well, what's your body of work look like? And how long have you been practicing these skills to start with? So for example, I have a personal example. My Nordic track just got fixed and I have not done 30% or more work in, I mean, it's been broken for like six months, right? It was on real terrain. So it's like, it's something that I should have got taken care of a long time ago. Point being, I've been doing some work and I put, I lived on that thing for a couple of years when I first started climbing and it helped exponentially. I did my first 30% interval session yesterday. I haven't touched 30% steady work guys in minimum of eight months. So, yeah, I'm going to say eight months. Anyways, 
point being is I got on there and things started to feel like they were clicking along pretty nicely initially. And it went great until it didn't. And suddenly I could not match my old metrics because my body was not prepared for that motion at that intensity at that angle over and over. And it did affect me cardiovascularly, but for the most part, it was my legs that started taking a shit on me. And your engine's big right now. My engine's big right now. Exactly. Arguably better than when you were doing well at 30% incline. Yeah, correct. And it wasn't awful, but I was, I got four reps at the pace I wanted to get six reps at was is kind of the point. But what I'm outlining is like in a, in a race, that's exactly how it would go. I would go into a race and I would start running uphill and thinking like, I'm good. Like I'm feeling good. I'm running uphill. I'm in the race. And then suddenly everything is going to go good until it doesn't. And you're going to wonder how the heck you got spit out the back. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what this all comes back to when I talk about your races being different. And so you had to train differently and da, da, da is that if you can, if it's a skill that you've worked, first of all, I did get myself about 75% of the way there in my workout without touching that incline. Like it wasn't a disaster, like a dumpster fire. It was just like, hey, you need to get to work. I couldn't touch that if I wasn't putting in a body of work before. So if you have a body of work done in the past, which means you've run uphill and downhill and trained hard, you've done all your lunging and squatting, you've pushed sleds in the past if you're a high rocks person, I think if I did something as simple as sprinkle in like a focused workout every three weeks in the off season, I think I would have went six for six on my reps and it would not have been a big deal. So one, if you have a body of work that is on race specific terrain or race specific skills, well then maybe when it's a ways out races is a way out. I think your 20 day thing is accurate, meaning like sprinkle in every 20 days, something focused on those skills that the race will acquire, but you're not ready to hone in yet. However, if you're me four years ago and you've never climbed a mountain before, that's when you're talking about like, you got to lay that body of work down. And so Bracken and I preach base phase training. We preach periodization and we, we will probably forever. But if you're one of those people who have never run a mountain before and you have your first mountain race for three months from now, you might be the person who needs to put in a ton of focus on the durability of that one skill right now before it gets too late. So I asked you, Bracken, like how, how far out is, is close enough or far, you know, whatever. And you said, well, three weeks, if you're being specific and, and maybe five, if you know, you want to really hammer. Well, if you don't have that body of work, like a Hobie call, then that changes things. And it should be infused a year out, six months out. If this is something new that you're kind of targeting. And so I, I don't know if I'm rambling or not, but the point being is like it, it's very situation specific based on your previous body of work or not. My Nordic track example was one way to outline that. Um, thank God I hopped on it when I did because I have time. But I think it's it's a little subjective based on what the skill is and what your, your I don't know, toolbox already has in it. You ready for an analogy? I, I am. Please clean this up for me. <laughs> skill work, eccentric work race specificity is credit card debt that's what it is oh when you use a credit card you don't have to pay it off every day you don't even have to pay it off every time you make a purchase but you better pay it off every month if you can pay it off every three to four weeks nothing accrues but the moment that fourth week expires that's when you start getting your interest added on and that thing adds up quickly in month one you might be like it's twenty dollars 
twenty dollars in in penalties right there. That's fine. Month two is going to be a little bit more, and suddenly month four, month five, you're looking at how is there this much debt sitting there? And now you've got to take a good chunk of time to undo that debt. If you let it slide one month or two months, it just takes a month or two of focus to pay that right back down. But the longer you let it go, the more you're looking at that six month, one year focus of, oh, I've got to rebuild everything. That's a really good analogy. Oh, thank you, Kurt. I was excited as soon as you started talking back and that was nice. And so that's it. Yep. How often do you have to pay a credit card? (laughs) Does the body work exactly that way? No. But the point is, you don't have to pay it every day or every week. But do not go longer than a month without paying that baby off. Three weeks is ideal. Your body works like a credit card. I'd love to just slap that out there and then see if anybody can make sense of of that one without any help. Yeah, maybe. Maybe not. Wouldn't be as popular as the pen shirt, probably. (laughs) Maybe not. I like that though. It's true. It is. That's a great analogy, man. That's so true. I think if you're going to turn this around on yourself, right? If you're going to hopefully get something out of this episode, which I know it's been a little mash, but um, it is like, okay, what's coming up? How much have I worked that specifically in the past? How much have I worked it recently? And then make a decision about maybe how to pivot your training. Like the backbone of your training shouldn't change as in like, Maybe you do quality on Tuesday and a longer effort Saturday and a skill work on Thursday. So you don't really change the bones of anything you're doing. You change like the the specifics, the weird cartilage thingies in between the bones, right? Like the, yep. the what what do I need to change here? So think about it for you. And if the answer is, oh, God, I haven't really ever put a big focus block into climbing or descending or pushing a sled or any of that, or concrete running, then you say, oh, shoot, I better start finding a way to do that twice a week right now. And if it, oh, I've done mountains and climbing in the past, for me, for the example, could I maybe get 95% of the way there in a three to five week push right now? Even though I haven't touched, let's say, 30% steep mountain climbing in a long time? Yeah, I think I could in three to five weeks. I'd see a really quick return on investment. But if you've never done that before, three to five weeks is only going to start, you know, is the tip of the iceberg for you. So... So for you, Bracken, let's bring it like full circle to your high rocks then. Like you would be the classic case where like Mm -hmm. COVID aside, two weeks or three weeks of if you had foresight. Yeah. That's all it would have taken. Don't you agree? Yeah. I look at it and I see you have three big needle moving opportunities. You have your intensity days, you have your long efforts, and you have your gym work. Those are the three forums where the work you do just takes deeper hold your daily aerobic work it's harder to drive real skill change on those days because you're not working at a high effort and so it doesn't translate at a one-to-one ratio the more you've let it go the more those days you have to dedicate to it for me someone that has done a good amount of work i can probably choose one I can do all my long runs in a specific manner for this, or I could do all my intensity days, or I could do all my gym work. And probably any one of those three is going to get me back to where I need to go. But the longer you've let it go, now you might have to do your intensity days and your gym work there and go do your long runs however you want. And if you have to do a specific block to get ready, you might have to dedicate all three versions of that to that skill you're working on. And that's the nice part about never letting it go is you never have to go all in. You can just dedicate one of those zones to working on whatever that one perishable skill is. Yeah. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. Absolutely. That one thing for me now 
is moving back my quality work. And I think I'll probably start with every other quality and every other long effort will be focused on that for now. Because I'm still going to be in a base-ish building phase. Yeah. And probably every other strength session. So 50% of my available needle mover days will be working on this. And then when we get about five weeks out, I'm probably going to go up to 75%. And then three weeks out, I'll probably go to 100% and get race-specific as I get closer to Vegas. Yeah. That way I cannot lose track of the other side of the coin perishable skills that I'll need for other venues because I'm not just doing this this year. There's a ton of races I want to do. But I want to go all in at the last possible minute so that I don't go all out on the other skills and then just get behind the eight ball on that one. Then you're borrowing one credit card to pay off another one, and that's not what you want either. Yep. So I want to do it at the last possible minute. Yeah, that makes that makes absolute perfect sense. I think that we do have peer roadrunners that listen to our podcast, but our sport is full of opportunities to go into a race with great fitness and then lay an egg. Yep. It is just like everywhere you look is a chance to to fail in a sense where, you know, a lot of us don't have access to race-specific terrain to just walk out our door and go race on terrain or run on terrain that's going to be like our race. A lot of us don't have access to 500-pound sleds to push at the gym we go to, or we don't have access to a ski erg if we're, you know, a high roxer. Um the only people that really I feel like can get out and be as specific as possible is those who race on the roads. Like that's a foolproof way to get anywhere, right? Yeah. Like to, okay, you don't, you don't really have to worry about this as much, but for everybody else who's at home stuck in the winter doldrums, can't get on the terrain, COVID shut down their gym, da, da, da. There's all these things where like, yeah, there's a lot of roadblocks. There's going to be a lot of people who go out there and race and are unhappy with their performance, they don't feel like they raced to their potential because their metrics tell them otherwise. Like, just don't be one of those people when racing resumes, meaning start thinking outside the box, start thinking specific, start working on your durability to what the race is going to require. And, you know, well, a lot of us will be humbled in our first race, and there's this thing is like rust busters, but you can break off almost all that rust in training mm-hmm. if it's done correctly. So I don't know. I just think when you think about durability, think about getting ready for races coming up. It's just like, just don't be one of those people who sit there scratching their head at the finish line, being like, "That wasn't me today." Well, it was unfortunately because you know you didn't work all the ancillary pieces and the nuances of of what that race requires, and so. I think it brings it all a lot, a lot to light. How you felt, even though you were really doing a good job in your training, but it's about splitting hairs at this point if you're going for a world record and that's what you had to do. And so, and that's the piece, right? If I was going there to compete and complete, I would have been just fine. But every second mattered. So, Kirk, I have two last points. I think we can wrap up in four minutes here. Okay. So this is an exercise I have athletes do sometimes, and it's one I do with myself. When there's something that's impossible or feels impossible to do, let's, let's use your example of prepare for mountains with no mountains. Mm-hmm. I have them or myself go through and say, okay, create the perfect training plan if you could never leave your basement for, for, for your situation. Let's say you were just quarantined and stuck in your garage and you could never leave it. Do you think you could figure out a way to be race ready without ever leaving your treadmill in your garage? 
and it would sound crazy and then you'd look at it and then your brain would start going to work and you'd be like, all right, I'm going to do a ton of box jumps and single leg box jumps. I'm going to do a lot of sled work and I'm going to lunge like crazy and do a lot of uphill running and then a lot of uphill running with box jumps in between to fill my legs up and get my eccentric impact and all that stuff. If you could build out an entire plan of that and then you take that and say, okay, I don't have to do that. But what were the commonalities? What were the principles I used there? And now overlay that with what I can do. Suddenly you're going to round out a ton of your deficiencies, but you have to almost remove the things you can do in order to actually put all your effort into figuring out how do we do those other things. You know, I really think people should do that as homework. If you have a skill that you're unsure about, pretend like you can do nothing but that. How would you get it done? I love that. Don't just wave the the white flag. Sit there and, and put something actual together. And if you're lucky enough to be able to not have to stay in your basement, then good for you. But then, then mm-hmm. you can even get more you know diverse with your training. But I like it. And the answer is yes. I think you can get 95% of the way there without really stepping foot in the exact circumstance that you're going to be stepping into on race day. It's good. Okay. And then you say, okay, let's say I, I had to do that and now I can only add one thing in around me. Well, I have this one long hill I could probably, and now you, boom, you've got that. Yep. We respond well when we have no options. That's when we innovate. So put yourself in a situation where you have to. Yeah. Was that both your points? That was, that was, that was the end of the episode points. I need to end with an apology. Okay. I'm interested. When we're wrong on here, we have to admit it. All right. And I think that, that I had a situation where I was wrong. We were talking about the, the Spartan U.S. National Series and the Elite Series, and I said, people just need to chill out. No one's dropping down into age group. You don't have to worry about us gunning for your spot. Mm-hmm. I was wrong. Well, you were wrong because you didn't know all the info. True, but wrong is wrong. Okay. Spartan released information accidentally yesterday that they are actually removing prize money from a lot of the venues, and they are even removing Elite Waves. Yeah. from some of the venues. And so I messaged Matt Davis because he, he helped break it. I said, so tell me what would happen if VJ Jones wanted to run his local race or Ryan Atkins. They're the two best males in North America right now, I think. If they wanted to run their local hometown race because A, it's expected of them, B, everyone they know is there, and C, they just want to do it because it's fun, what would they do? He said, I guess sign up age group or don't race. And I thought, well, shoot, <laughs> we are at that point now yep. where if I want to run my local race, I either have to run age group or just not run. And I can tell you for a fact, if a Spartan race came to Minnesota, like we used to have, and it was non-paid, I would be down there and I would probably take an age group spot from somebody because what am I supposed to do with that circumstance? And now it puts us in a bad, not by us, it sounds haughty, but anyone who should be running in the pro wave or the elite wave or wants to just go compete, it puts the onus back on the athlete to make a decision. They either have to then say, all right, I'm going to do it with no timing chip, or I'm going to do it and I'm going to step off course early, or do an infraction that DQs me, or I'm going to take a podium spot from someone. So I have to apologize. I was wrong. It is going to happen. Because every athlete wants to run their hometown race, and their their friends and family are there. They're kind of expected to. So I apologize. Apology accepted. And in your defense, we were talking about the National Series-type races mostly. And that's going to happen. Jacksonville? Jacksonville is one of them. It's going to happen. Yeah. We did not know that information, but yes, now that is a plausible situation. Uh, so I'm sorry. You have valid concerns, and I'm going to be facing that myself. 
Mm-hmm. Is there a race locally that that is not elite? TBD you know? whether they're going to have prize money or not. But yeah, Notre Dame, for example, stadium, not on that list. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess times we live in, Bracken, times we live in. Times we live in. You got to get those kids to school, educated. Time for me to roll. All right. You going to edit this episode today? Yep. <laughs> Shoot. All right. We got to go. As soon as I go. get back, I'm going to do it. See you, folks. Bye. Bye. <laughs>